When people think about starting a translation of the New Testament, they usually need to decide which Greek text they're going to use as a source text. Unlike Old Testament translation where everyone defaults to the Masoretic text, there are more than one New Testament source texts to choose from, like the UBS, the Nestle Alan, the Byzantine text, the Textus Receptus, and others. And some of the modern popular ones are locked down by copyright. So over the course of the next two episodes, I want to introduce you to someone who is innovating in this field and trying to serve the church with a transparent, critical Greek text that everyone can use without hindrance. I'm Andrew Case, and you're listening to Working for the Word. guest in this episode, Alan Bunning, received his education in New Testament Greek from the Kensington Theological Academy under the tutelage of Dr. David R. Dilling and received his D.Lit. degree for his work done in textual criticism. Alan's primary background is in computer science, and after working in the industry for many years, he became a college professor working as an assistant professor in computer information systems at Ivy Tech Community College and then was a senior lecturer in computer science at Purdue University. He retired from Purdue in 2020 and now devotes himself to working full-time as the executive director for the Center for New Testament Restoration. So when I was about 30 years old, I was working at Purdue University in IT, and, and one of my employees was going to a Greek class. And I said, well, that sounds really interesting. Mind if I tag along? And they said, sure. So I ended up sticking with it took a year of Greek. Near the end of the class, they said, well, and you know, there are different Greek manuscripts that people translate from. And I'm like, what? Wow, wow, what is this you're springing on me? Well, which one's right? Uh, what, what is this? You know, so the class wasn't designed to really answer those questions. So I then set out to say, well, what are the differences? I got on the internet and collect, downloaded several different Greek manuscripts. And indeed, they were different. I, I, I realized in that process that even the ones on the internet that claimed to be the same thing were all different. And that's kind of wow. like, that's kind of like another story. Uh, but, yeah. but anyway, uh, ended up putting, I don't know, f- about six Greek texts that, that people would typically use to translate from on the internet and, and assembled them together and made a collation out of them and, and then realized, well, all these texts are made, you know, after the printing press, you know, over a thousand years later. What are they based on? So it, it didn't really answer my question. Seeing that they were different was eye-opening, but then why are they different and what are they based on? Yeah. Uh, so that led to a journey that took over a decade where I went and went to a lot of libraries and started transcribing uh, the earliest manuscripts and then assembling them and putting them on the website to, again, begin to see what are things based on and what is the evidence. So my, I kind of got a vision then of getting this information to the general public so that the general public would be able to, basically the journey I just went through would not be a black box to them, that they would be able to have some insight into uh, the, the original text that people are translating from. Mm-hmm. So you wanted to give transparency to all of the variants 
with discussion and also make it available to the level of any layman, basically. Right. So when I first assembled all these manuscripts and put them in a collation that was still all in Greek, and my friends would say, well, it's wonderful. I don't understand it at all. You know, it, what, how, yeah. what am I supposed to do with this? So a couple years ago, I was able to uh, make that in an interlinear format so that basically they can now see what the different words mean, click on the, the Strong's number, and they can then see the difference. So like when you're a Bible study and say, well, your, your Bible reads different than mine. You know, some of that could be a translational issue, uh, but some of it is uh, just a difference in the Greek text they were translating from. So they can, you know, pull up my website, pull up the verse and see, ah, see, your your translation followed those manuscripts where mine followed these manuscripts. And so they can kind of, again, it brings visibility into the process. Yeah, yeah. So you have a website that you've created called greekcntr.org for everyone who's listening. CNTR stands for the Center of New Testament Restoration. Is that right? Center for New Testament Restoration, yes. Okay, yeah. And your motto is bringing scientific textual criticism to the masses. Maybe unpack that a little bit more. What do you mean by scientific textual criticism? Right, so again, making putting the raw data out there in a format people can interact with was obviously step one. And then my vision from the beginning is, okay, so now that we have the information, so again, a lot of my transcriptions there nobody ever had. So a lot, a lot of them, I was the first to do many of them, and still several of them can be found nowhere else. So first you got to get the data. Once you get the data, then we can say, okay, how do we know who's right or what, what, what is the correct rating or how, how would you even go about it? Well, as a computer scientist, you know, I, I would want a scientific way of looking at it. A lot of what is, has gone into these uh, very commentaries and uh, like Mesker's or whatever uh, is not scientific. It is kind of like a, let me say, a, a reasoned argument approach. Mm-hmm. But, you know, then when the next group of people make their Greek New Testament, they, they see it differently. They have different set of reasonable arguments. Which is why, you know, the Nestle Olan text, difference from the Tyndale House text, this difference from the SBL text. So all those major critical texts, they don't agree with each other. And yeah. and so it's it's better to, to go down to the raw data that they're based on and say, okay, what what's going on there? So the scientific part would be having basically a statistical look at the data that's not theologically biased. So again, a lot of decisions, why do you pick this reading, variant reading versus that one, is determined by somebody's theology or worldview. So for example, Mark 141, almost every Bible that's been translated says that Jesus was compassionate and healed the leper, including the NIV when it first came out. But Mm. if you read the NIV version after the year 2011, it says Jesus was indignant and healed the leper. So we didn't have, didn't really find any new manuscripts <laughs> uh, that changed from the time it said Jesus was compassionate to when Jesus was indignant. What changed? Well, what changed was the theological bias uh, of the committee. Most of the early manuscripts all say it was compassionate, which is why most all the Bible translations say it was compassionate. But there is one early man, not even really early, a relatively early manuscript that said he was indignant, but it stands alone. And, and that mm-hmm. one early manuscript is also one of the most unreliable manuscripts we have. So you say, well, why would anybody choose indignant over compassionate? 
And it's because, again, of worldview. Somebody would say, well, why would anybody ever say he was indignant? That must be what it was. And so there's like a grand conspiracy that the church edited it to say it was compassionate because they were embarrassed. And so they, they put these things in their commentary as their reasoning for why they would say that Jesus was indignant. Whereas, you know, I really don't, I don't want to have a, a liberal theology or a conservative theology, you know, because then you could, you could, you could go the other way and, and like everything that agrees with my theology, I'm going to pick those variants. I would just mm -hmm. rather have something objectively weigh the data statistically and, and then let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. So I guess you would disagree with the concept of the harder reading in traditional textual criticism, or is that does that factor into your statistical analysis? Well, right now it doesn't. It can. So we okay. we, could, we can we could objectively rate uh, readings by whether mm -hmm. they're the harder one or not. So we can go through each one uh, with a committee or a metric and say, okay, how hard is this reading compared to other ones? Then you can do that objectively, and then you could also add that data in into yeah. the mix. So right now I have taken different statistics and created what I what I have released as the, the Statistical Restoration Greek New Testament. It came out about a few months ago. And it, it's based on the earliness of the manuscripts, the reliability of the manuscripts, and the diversity of support for each reading. And so, and, and those are three things that textual critics look at. Uh, but it's going to do mm -hmm. each one unbiased. You know, there's no theological bias in those. So you could add harder reading to that mix for like a, another release of it that can factor in. So it, in which case, it's still not theological, right? If you just have unbiasing, which reading's harder than another? Uh, right. We're not saying, well, and this one fits my theology or that one fits my theology. So that that data could be factored in as well in, in a okay. objective manner. Yeah, in my experience, I have found that textual criticism decisions are often subjective, slightly subjective, and also often speculative, because there's just so much we don't know. Uh, what's going on in the mind of scribes, what the circumstances are, what they're looking at, all of that is is so hard to to know, or impossible to know. Right, so one of the... One of the uh predicates, I guess, of statistical restoration is the observation that the earliest scribes, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Sinaiticus, all the earliest scribes, manuscripts we have, almost all of them, were doing their own textual criticism. You can see them write something, cross through it, and then go with a variant reading that they had. So textual criticism has been going on from the beginning, and they've been trying to get it right, you know, two or three hundred years after Jesus. They were Okay, wait, I don't think that reading's right. It probably is this reading. Statistically, I mean, I don't need to then assemble another group of people 2,000 years later and ask them to do the same thing that all the early scribes were already doing. Uh, it's more interesting to, to weigh the evidence that we already have. So it's, it's that realization is that it's not like nobody did textual criticism and, and so we have to do it now. No, they were always doing it. So let's simply weigh the manuscripts on objective data and see where that leads us. Right. So I guess if I were playing the devil's advocate, I would say that obviously all of these people involved, like Daniel Wallace, would say that they are objective. Because <laughs> we all think that we're objective, right? But at the same time, then a lot of people might say, well, the experience that we've had as a modern culture with statistical machine-produced 
things. Like we could take statistical machine guessing for translation, and we see that there are also some problems that arise from that sometimes. It's not always perfect. So how would you answer that kind of question? Like, how, how can we be sure the machine isn't causing at least as many problems as the lack of objectivity that humans have? Yeah, a couple a couple things there. So yeah, while, while Wallace, I'm sure, thinks he's objective, so does the Nestle Island Committee. They think they're objective. I mean, but, they're, yeah. but their objectivity doesn't agree with each other. <laughs> For starters, we can already start with that, that there's already disagreement among the people who think they're being objective. We have to use the same standard then for the computer that if it's going to come up with something that we're going to disagree with, uh, we would want to know why, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so the computer would have its, quote, reasons uh, buried in its statistics that we could uncover. But then I would say that, you know, if, if we see something strange or whatever, uh, that mm -hmm. it was producing, you know, we would obviously dig down and see, well, where are you coming up with that? There, there aren't really any such things that I, I have found. But this, this version of the SR has what I call the expert overrides feature. What it does, and it only kicks on for, I don't know, maybe like 400 words or something like that. It, it, it doesn't kick on very often. But in the case that all of the experts agreed on, at least the experts in my database agreed and the computer came up with something different. It's turned on so that it'll, it'll go with the unanimous consent of the experts. And, okay. and that's under the theory that, look, I don't actually have all the data in my database, right? There's some other manuscripts that they may be looking at or some something else. So it's kind of a safety net. I see. Interesting. Okay, so let me just back up a little bit here. I think one of the motivations for what you've been doing has been also to get something out there that isn't bound by the traditional copyright mentality. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, Peter, Peter James and John and, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, uh, they never copyrighted their work. It would, that would be a, an amazing idea to them that somehow somebody's going to try to copyright their work and, and restrict it and charge money for it. Uh, that's just yeah. so, so foreign to the gospel. So it was meant to be free. They said, "Hey, read, have this letter read to uh, this other church." Uh, they want it. They want to get it out. Now I understand, you know, that you know there's printing costs and uh, different things, and and that was true for you know many centuries after the printing press. You know, somebody's got to pay for the paper. Some there's a lot of time involved. But with the advent of the internet, the distribution is virtually zero cost. You can upload something to the internet and people can download it for free, access it for free. If they wanted a paper copy, you know, there's print-on-demand services and that, mm. that, that can do that for them. Uh, but, you know, even the realities of cost argument has kind of been taken away so that, yeah, there's really no reason why it can't be free for everyone. Right. And it, we also enter into the domain of a sacred divine text, which is, I, I mean, even in a court of law, that's a very sticky issue to say, I can copyright that and own that myself. It, <laughs> something that was, I claim to have been revealed from heaven, I can now take ownership and claim it as my property. I, I think that's not only disingenuous, it doesn't even make sense to most people. How much do you know about the whole process of 
how this copyright works for these original texts. So if I were to say I want to translate the UBS critical text into Swahili, do I have to pay them royalties? Do I have to sign a contract with UBS for to be able to translate that text? Do you have any idea how that even works? Because I don't actually. Well, my understanding is, yeah, the, the text is copyrighted, so uh, there would need to be uh, permission granted, and it, I think it's li- highly likely they would be granted permission, and maybe for free, I'm not really sure. But the copyright issue is a stickler then, that if they make this translation, it's a derivative work, so they don't own the copyright because it's a derivative work. So let's say 20 years from now, they want to revise something in it because their language drifted a little bit. Well, they don't actually own the rights to that text because it's a derivative work. So they'd have to get permission again. Uh It just kind of locks up a lot of things. And and a lot of places won't start a translation because of that. Like if you're behind a a wall where it's illegal to be a Christian and to translate, they don't want to make public contact and say, hey, we're translating the Bible. Hey, will you give us permission? Uh, they just don't really want to go there. So mm-hmm. uh, if we can give them free Bible translation resources, that basically gets rid of one obstacle to getting the Word of God you know, translated in other languages. So, Okay. So do you have any idea about the major translations, like some, like the NIV, for example? Obviously, the NIV is, at least in partnership with the United Bible Societies, do they have to pay royalties? Did they use for their critical text that they used? Did they use a critical text or did they use several different texts? Kind of their own eclectic approach? Do you have any idea? Yeah, I believe in that case they uh, used an eclectic approach. So they wouldn't say that they exactly translated, let's say, the current Nestle Alan text at the time. They made their, some of their own textual variations, such as I mentioned after 2011 when, when Jesus became indignant. That was a, their own textual de- decision, and Nestle Alan text didn't have that. So, and, and by doing so, you can kind of get around that copyright issue by saying, well, we didn't, we didn't use your text. Maybe we looked at your text, along with some other texts and maybe along with some some original manuscripts but we didn't use your text exclusively so that that kind of gets them around uh, some of that issue yeah okay in your case then how have you decided to license the work that you've done and also i'm interested you've done a ton of work i i don't know maybe decades of work on this going and gathering the different variants and collating things how did you fund this how did you keep it going just financially and then how have you decided to license it okay well so when i started down that road after learning greek this was a hobby right so i'm teaching at uh, Ivy Tech Community College. Later, I'm teaching at Purdue University. And so I'm just Mm kind of doing this nights and weekends. It's my own little hobby. So I funded it myself, I guess you could say. Really, at that point, didn't really know how far I was going with it. If I would have (laughs) known how much work all of this would have entailed, I wouldn't have even started, to to be (laughs) honest with you. But each step was, oh, and I could probably add this to it, and I could probably add that to it, you know. When it came time to actually release them, so like uh, my transcriptions that I've done uh, are released under what they call a Creative Commons license. 
which is considered an open license. The idea being that anybody can take those transcriptions now and do whatever they want with them. All they really have to do is uh, give attribution where they got it. And then if they make changes, they need to say what they did and make those available. So what mm -hmm. that does is, is keeps the, the openness of it going. So if somebody improves on it, then others get the improvements. And, mm -hmm. and so it just keeps the, the thing perpetually open. Now I released, uh, Three Greek texts, just uh, Creative Commons by, which means you just have to give attribution. So the, the okay. statistical restoration text I'm talking about, uh, you can use that whatever you want. You can make derivatives. You can do whatever you want with it. All you really have to do is give attribution uh, where you got it from. So the it's not like, oh, gee, I need lots of attribution. What that does is kind of establishes a, a chain, at least, of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, credibility. Credibility, right. Where did you get that from? What is it based on? And so if somebody yeah. changes it, what did you do to it? What is that based on? And so mm -hmm. it, it keeps everything, again, open and honest. Mm -hmm. So you're a living example of someone who was able to actually do ministry without charging people a bunch of money and giving it away freely. That's yes. that's uh, refreshing. Indeed. Now I will add that. <laughs> it's, it's actually possible to, to be like Paul, I guess, huh? <laughs> I will add that. So uh, I'm, getting, I'm getting a little older. So at some point in time, I thought, well, this, this project needs to live beyond me, it needs to ensure that uh, you know, the website and all these stuff keep going. So I, I went looking for a partner and I talked to a couple different cr Christian colleges and I was actually in talks with one uh, to bring my project in-house and uh, COVID hit, and when that happened, we decided to put the talks on hold. But in the meantime, a, a mission organization uh, called Unfolding Word saw what I was doing, and they said, well, hey, we, we like what you're doing, and we would like to fund it. And hmm. so I contemplated that for quite a while, but uh, in the end, I retired from uh, my faculty position at Purdue University in the last couple of years now have been devoting full time to this. So again, I'm, I'm, I'm getting close to retirement age. So I'm glad yeah. it's kind of found a home. And, and again, I'm having more and more volunteers that are coming out of the woodwork and making enhancements to it and doing different things. So it seems Chris like, Gus. it seems like the project's on firm footing now. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Now I want to jump in here real quick and read something from the overview document on the website that I think is really, really helpful in thinking through these things that we've been talking about. In section 2.2, Alan writes, the CNTR maintains the principle that the text of the Greek New Testament itself cannot be copyrighted. The authors of the New Testament never copyrighted their works and never would have, even if it were possible, for they wanted their writings to be freely read and shared by everyone. The New Testament is almost 2,000 years old, and thus any possible copyright claims by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have long since expired. And yet, there are many organizations who have tried to assert copyright restrictions over their Greek New Testaments. But the fact of the matter is that no copyright can ever be enforced solely on the text of the Greek New Testament, at least not in the United States. Consider a similar example concerning the public data contained in a phone book. The publication of a particular phone book itself, its layout, choice of cover, formatting, and arrangement of the data is a copyrightable work in its entirety. The public data contained within it, however, is not. 
Another company may take a copyrighted phone book and transcribe all the phone numbers, and then publish their own copyrighted phone book quite legally. And this has actually happened. Likewise, while a publication of the Greek New Testament may be copyrighted in its entirety, the text itself is not copyrightable. Quote, copyright is not a tool by which a compilation author may keep others from using the facts or data he or she has collected. The reconstruction of a public domain work is still a public domain work. The amount of effort that went into its reconstruction doesn't matter at all. Consider again the example of the phone book. But this time, let's imagine that the original phone book were completely lost. By digging through the city dump and collecting fragments, examining phone books from adjacent years, and finding quotations from other sources, the public domain data contained in that phone book is painstakingly reconstructed. The incredible amount of sweat of the brow employed to obtain the reconstruction, however, still would not provide a basis for establishing a copyright claim. Regardless of the amount of effort, others would still be allowed to copy this non-copyrightable public domain data, including any errors that were made in the process. Of course, any particular publication of this work could still be copyrightable in its entirety, but the data contained in the publication was and will always remain in the public domain. In line with these principles, Maurice A. Robinson copyrighted his 2005 Byzantine text form publication, but then stated that the text could be copied without restriction. Quote, copyright is not claimed nor asserted for the new and revised form of the Greek New Testament text of this edition. End quote. Some organizations, such as the publishers of the Nestle Alon text, however, have tried to assert their copyright to prevent others from using their base text. Such copyright claims, however, are highly dubious. For if they assert that their reconstructed text represents the Greek New Testament, then by their own admission, that text itself is not copyrightable. Indeed, as researchers achieve their goal of restoring the public domain text to its original form, their texts begin to closely match each other. Consider that the copyrighted Nestle Aland 28th edition is 98.5% identical to the public domain Westcott and Hort text, and if spelling differences are ignored, they are 99.3% identical. Does a 0.7% change represent a new creative work? Or should that rather be considered plagiarism? Quote, To be copyrightable, a derivative work must be different enough from the original to be regarded as a new work or must contain a substantial amount of new material. The new material must be original and copyrightable in itself. Of course, other unique features that are added to a published text, such as apparatuses, punctuation, diacritical marks, formatting, etc., may indeed be copyrightable, but the representation of the ancient Greek text alone is not. Now, there's more to read there, so I would encourage you to check out that section in the document, at least that section, and also make sure to check out all the footnotes. There are extensive footnotes throughout that section that I just read, if you want to go deeper. You, you mentioned unfolding word. They're using your text for their open Greek text, source text. And then also talk to us about Tyndale House. They 
also have used your text as a base for their Greek New Testament, I believe. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sh- privy to all the details. My, my vague recollection was uh, one day somebody put my work up on the screen at some conference. I don't even know what it was. And somebody saw that and said, wow, yeah, we can use that. We, could, we, we can go through that and make a, a Greek text. I didn't really know this was going on. I guess some people from Tyndale House would email me from time to time asking questions or pointing things out. And yeah, they uh, they did use my collation to help them come up with the Greek text. It was good uh, to establish a good relationship with them and, and try to help them out however I could. Yeah, that's great. There's actually a doc I would encourage people to read on your website. It's kind of an overview doc that will give you more detail on just the background and purpose of of your project. Basically, you point out four problems at the beginning that part of the general public has had little to no ability to evaluate the work that goes into the production of the source texts for their translations. There are four things there. Maybe could you walk us through those four things? So the first thing was acquisition. So you have to get the raw data before you can make all your decisions. So like I said, I spent over a decade trying to get every Greek manuscript I could get my hands on before the, the year 400 AD. Again, that had never been done. Again, they had some of those manuscripts, but not all of them. So you know, one of my arguments was, you know, we, we, we can make great decisions based on the data we have, but if we don't have all the data, how great are our decisions? So, yeah. so that was kind of the first step. And that was before Daniel Wallace began his project? Uh, yeah, probably. Probably. Yeah. Okay. Wow. And then uh, the second step then is assemblage. So uh, somebody has to look at all those manuscripts then, which have which differ from each other, and determine uh, what variant readings. So we spent a long time talking about the statistical restoration. That's really not the heart of what I'm trying to do. That's more of a sideline to the fact that I just really want to expose the raw data so that people can see it and interact with it themselves. So mm-hmm. putting the correlation and getting that data up there and making it interlinear where they can actually see it. So then they can evaluate whether they think the SR was a good one or Nestle Allen was good. They can evaluate that for themselves now and see line it up with the early manuscript information and see what's going on there. Be aware that, you know, there are variant readings and, and some other people that you don't know are deciding what those should be. And in most cases, uh, well, at least let's say many cases, I think it's probably most cases, the people making those decisions are not evangelical born-again Christians. Uh, there's some of them are agnostics or atheists. Some of them, uh, many of them are liberals. And when we realize that a theological bias is going into it, people need to be aware that it may not be the same as a theological bias that they would like to see in there. Um, and yeah. so simply getting away like who's right, who's wrong, let's just put the data out there, then people can see it for themselves. So I think that's the more significant thing rather than saying who's right, who's wrong. Uh, even the SR you know, is using an objective metric, but you know, there could be other metrics. Yeah. When you refer to SR, what do you mean? Uh, the statistical restoration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after that, then there's an analysis stage. So if we once we assemble the, the Greek text we want to use, then we have to decide what words mean, all right, because the language is dead. And so we're, we're looking at, you know, morphologically parsing them and syntactically parsing them and lexically parsing them. 
One of the other firsts, again, was that I was able to do that for all of the early manuscripts and the major critical texts, every, all the texts in my database to the same scheme, So, which wow. was great for, again, comparing them. So you might find one text using one system and another text uses another system. At least all texts now have been parsed using the same scheme anyway. So yeah. there's there's a, a small amount of subjectivity uh, in that. There is some subjectivity in, in some of the parsing. Uh, you, some sure. some one word could go this way, it could go another way. But it, yeah, that that's a, a smaller uh, example of subjectivity there. The last step would be at adaptation. So that's where you're actually going to interpret. Then you got your text, you got this parsing. You're actually going to interpret it and translate it into some language, and so. Um, you know, again, each one of these four processes that went on has some subjectivity more than some more than others. And, and so, you know, uh, I subscribe to the statement that, you know, God's words inspired in an error in the original autographs. When it comes to these four steps, men are doing these, right? There's no guarantee that men have been divinely inspired to determine which variant readings should be included or divinely inspired in their translations. So again, if we put the data out there, people can then see for themselves. But right now, all four steps, you know, people just basically go to a bookstore and buy a Bible and, and all four of those steps went on by people they don't know and they have had no ability to look at that data or even know it exists and, and to make any kind of determination for themselves. Bringing all that to light is, is part of the, the goal of, you know, bringing scientific textual criticism to the mass where we can expose the data and processes so that it can be visible. Great. Now, on your website or in that doc that I referred to earlier, you say that the CNTR maintains the principle that materials related to the Greek New Testament should be represented in Koine Greek wherever possible. Unpack that a little bit for us. Why do you say that and what does that mean? All right. Well, uh, when I learned Greek, I thought I was learning Koine Greek. And, and, and for the most part, I was. But the Greek that were you see in a, a modern you know, textbook where you're learning Greek or, or even on the, the critical texts and the lexicons, that Greek is represented in what I call medieval Greek. So the original Koine Greek had no punctuation, had no accent marks. The characters actually look a little different, some of them. Uh, there were no spaces. So if we really want to get back and you know, evaluate stuff from the beginning, the origins, then we need to uncover that as well. So like, you know, the punctuation in, in a Greek New Testament isn't divinely inspired either. So if you pick any Greek modern yeah. text, they're all punctuated differently. Well, that wasn't in the original. Paul didn't write that. If we can unpack some of these things that have been added onto it, uh, that again, it gives us a more accurate version of, of, you know, what the choices were, what the possibilities were. Simply learning that, and then also learning, so for example, and you, you would see this in the, the coalition, that these early manuscripts spelled words all differently. They spelled words phonetically. And so there wasn't like spelling rules like we have today. So anyway, in, in, that, in the process of understanding Koine Greek and what you have, you then see areas where there is some ambiguities and, and, and see you know, where there is some subjectivity and what's going on. 
And so again, it's 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 not for you know the average user is it's not going to care about any of that. So I, I depict it both ways. I put the original, uh, the earliest manuscripts. I depict them in Koine Greek without punctuation accents, and then the major critical texts. Uh, I show them with their accent marks and punctuation and capitalization. There wasn't there wasn't any such thing as capitalization. So, you know, when you read mm-hmm. you read something in your your Bible that's got a capital S for spirit, and then somebody somebody else's translation has a lowercase s for spirit. Well, gee, capital S would be Holy Spirit, right? And lowercase s would be like some other spirit or something. Well, and then then to realize that there was no capitalization. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's a man-made uh, construct of, of capitalization right. that, again, that biases the text. So just understanding these things is useful to know. Yeah. So so basically you're saying that the eclectic texts, the critical texts that we have today, represent a Greek that is highly has been highly standardized, smoothed out. Like they've, they've standardized spelling in these editions, Correct, right? Correct, right. And so uh, for the most part... Uh, there are a couple that, like the Tyndale House and Westcott and Hort critical editions, would we'll, would we'll try to still spell the way words okay. the way they were spelled. But yeah, like the other ones, they'll they'll even change the spelling and try to standardize right. it to be like you'd expect in a modern textbook. Sure. So they've added these different diacritics and punctuation, and then even the fact that it's in minuscules. I mean that completely hides the fact that so many of the early manuscripts were in unsealed scripts. I, I don't think most seminary students who have taken years and years of Greek, if you give them an unsealed script, a manuscript, they, they won't be able to read it. Right, yeah. It, it was a surprise to me. Like, what is this you're showing me? Well, that's actually Koine Greek. That's <laughs> what you're showing me. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's definitely hard. It, it's a, And I guess their goal is to just make it a little easier for a lot of people to have access to beginning students, etc., people who haven't been able to had the luxury of, of studying Greek in all of its forms for fifty years. Yeah, you know? yeah. So that's that's not that's not necessarily a bad thing. It helps pronunciation. But I, I noticed that there is a trend among some to try to get back to the original Koine Greek pronunciation and and learning Greek with the original Greek characters. And without the accents, because, you know, we don't, we don't have the accents of, over the words in English, right? We just know what one to stress, whatever. Uh, same thing. You, you would, you would learn Greek the same way and you would know what to stress and whatnot. You know, so you don't, you don't need the, you know, these marks over there to necessarily do it. But it, yeah, for somebody just learning, some of these A's are useful. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess you could say the same thing of Hebrew. We are basically tied to a medieval text and a medieval manuscript. And with all of the diacritics that they added, because the language had been forgotten largely, which didn't need vowels and didn't need accents before. Yeah, you're just highlighting that a lot of people aren't being able to experience the orthography as it was originally in those manuscripts when they look at the data and you want to represent it as closely as possible to the original data so they can see how those kinds of variants could have crept in based on the way it's represented in the manuscripts, not in a medieval text. That's right. So in some cases, in textual criticisms, a difference is caused by one letter different, right? So in that case, spelling does matter. Right. You know, and this is something that I've faced myself, is if you're looking at 
a standard text with, with the medieval representation and minuscules and all of that and with the spacing, it is hard to imagine it all scrunched together without any spaces and maybe in all capitals and how those letters could be confused. Without being able to see that really clearly, it is harder to make a really good value judgment on how this textual variant could have happened. So that's really useful. Yeah, so uh, obviously the, the, the CNTR website still work in progress and there's still a lot more uh, things uh, that will come up probably in the next year or so. The idea is uh, eventually there'll be an English translation on there a very literal one that you can then hover over a word and it would then show you the Greek that corresponds with that. Right now you can already, from the collation, click on, uh, see the collation, click on an individual manuscript. It will take you to that manuscript. It will show you the transcription. And then you can click on, on an image and it will pop it up. And so you're staring at the actual manuscript that it was all based on. And so yeah. uh, I do have the feature of adding spaces uh, which you can eliminate through a filter so that you can look at the transcription uh, where the words are divided and or not, and, and then also look at the image. So the idea is we want to be able to, you know, for, for verification, we want to be able to, you know, take an English translation and drill all the way down to the bottom. Like, you don't think that manuscript said that? Well, let's let's look at it and see. You don't think it should yeah. be parsed that way? Well, let's look at it and see. So that everything top to bottom shows you basically the credibility of your translation. Yeah. And normally, the functionality that you d just described on your website would come at an extremely high cost if you were talking about a uh, standard, you know, paid-for Bible software out there, that functionality would be very expensive to obtain. And I think it's, it's just such a great model and example of how this can actually be done, accomplished, and provided to the church as a gift that God is going to bless many people with. And that's that's really wonderful to hear. Yeah, and that's that's the blessing that I've seen. So for me, it's kind of like action at a distance. I, I don't know the name of, of probably anybody who's been translating it. Uh, well, I take that back. I, I do know two or three people have emailed me and are translating the Bible directly from my website. But I know mm -hmm. that you know the, the first Greek text I released, is, it was the BHP, the Bunning Heuristic Prototype. That unfolding word is used for their base text, and it's been translated in a hundred different languages. And so, you know, knowing that, you know, we're, we're, we're knocking these barriers down, people are interacting with this material and translating it into languages that have never been in before, that is a blessing. Mm 